Hello, and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I am your moderator, JP, and I'm here with Father Chuck. Yo. Father Chuck. Um, <laughs> I'm just having one of the moments where I'm totally blank, and I don't know what to say or do. Um, and the, the best thing, man. We hope you enjoyed our episode on Dune. <laughs> Learn to love the bomb. Lean into it. Lean into it. Just keep talking. Um, you know, I always thought that, like, you, you know what they always say, like, practice makes perfect. Uh, fake they? it till you make it. Who's they? They. The capitalists. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is one of the things that my boys' teachers are really big in is like for in, instilling in critical thinking. Always ask who's they. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. That, no, that's good. I'm glad your teachers are teaching your kids that. That's good. You, you should. Um, they, they, but that's that's what they say. Um, I have to say, I've I've been practicing and faking it till I make it on this podcast. I do not think I am that much better than when I started. <laughs> um, well, we haven't made it yet. So keep faking. That's true. I'm still faking it. I still am pretending <laughs> like I know what I'm doing. I got a microphone that makes me a podcaster. That's it. You know, um, we're two white guys with beards and microphones. And it internet is. Connection. <laughs> I, do you remember uh, Britt Hayes from uh, Birth Movies Death, mm-hmm. writer? She yeah. made a really funny comment in an, an article she recently wrote saying that, like, she realizes that, um, like, she was no, no longer going to criticize uh, men who start a podcast because it's an important part of their journey. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, that's true. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that, but okay, fine. As as a podcaster, I love podcaster dunks. I, I just do. I think because yeah. I don't know. I'm a good sport about it. I think they're funny. Um, but I always counter with uh, podcasters are the most masculine men. Actually, um, I can do 500 sit-ups a day because I'm a podcaster. Can you, listener? Yeah, this was related to my favorite. One of my favorite sort of observations in life is that the the sort of dude who rails about how like men aren't valued in society anymore <laughs> yeah. tends to be just like a simp. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What was it? What was it? I, I saw I saw a comment on an article in the new, the local newspaper the other day that was like, that was like, um, was it real real like, actual tough guys don't talk about the Second Amendment. Oh, is there there's there a second part to that? That that's it. Well, no, because it's, it's like people talk about gun control and gun stuff, and they were saying that like the whole like Second Amendment conversation, and they're like, yeah. they're like saying that like. The guys who the guys who are always talking about Second Amendment stuff, like they're not tough guys. They are the Second Amendment. Like literally. They're made out of papyrus and <laughs> I don't know. They're slowly they're slowly fading from view as a result of ultraviolet light. Nicholas Cage sometimes kidnaps them to find treasure. That's the declaration, not the Constitution. Come on now. See, well, I'm sure Nicholas Cage would Steal the Constitution in an episode in, in a movie as well. I'm sure there's. Hey, did you hear about? Did you hear about the National Treasure nonsense he pulled on his own copy of uh, Action Comics? Whatever. No. 
the first appearance of Superman. Yeah. So he had a copy of it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it was someone in the early 2000s, whatever. He claimed that it was stolen. So he collected the insurance money on it. Mm -hmm. Years later, it appears mysteriously in an unclaimed storage unit. And it gets sold to auction, and it makes like two point three million dollars. Oh my god! Who was the guy who sold it? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Nice work. <laughs> That's great. You know, it's funny. Like, I, I love Nicholas Cage. I, I mean, if if he did that, whatever. Um, but <laughs> I'm sure there's more details to it. But Probably. yeah, one of my. Uh, Favorite memories from um, the hit series Sliders. Uh, there was an episode in the later seasons when they were they. I think they had slid into a world that was completely abandoned, like there was no human being present. And um, they split ways, and then they reconvened uh, because the timer was about to go off, but another portal was going to open, and uh, Remy. Rembrandt, Rembrandt Brown, the crying man. He um, he has an issue of of Action Comics number one, or Action Comics: The First Appearance of Superman. And they're like, "What do you?" Actually, get it okay, so they're like, "What do you have?" It's the first appearance of Superman. It's going to be worth a fortune wherever we go. But the funny thing is, is, like the sliders, they don't have like bags. You know, they don't have luggage, and so he just he right. rolls it up and shoves it down his pants. Before they slide, <laughs> and I was wondering, is like, was that is that like a joke, or do these writers really think like you can just do that? JP, it's sliders. <laughs> it's a joke. They know that it just completely devalued that comic. Because <laughs> when that happened, I definitely like freaked out. Um, but but I'm also like, I wouldn't put it past them, Chuck, if they're just like. Ah, no, no, he rolls it up. It's fine. He can sell it. Here's a question that I have. Yeah. Has anybody made any effective, like, really good sliders slash slide into her DMs jokes? Because I feel like there's some material there. Uh, I don't know. I'll. You know what? I will search Twitter today, and I'll get back to you on that. I'll do that. Yeah. That's a good slide question. into her DMs like Jerry McCon like Jerry O'Connell. I mean, that's you know. <laughs> Sliding in like Remy the Crying Man Brown. <laughs> it's like, who? You know, Clevin Derricks. Okay. Oh, man. Um, so we're not here to talk about sliders. We're no, right. wait, hold up. There was. Okay, go on. I feel like there was something I was going to. There was something else I was going to make a comment. But they just go for it, whatever. Okay, maybe it'll come. To I'm you. fine, man. <laughs> Today we're talking about Angels, um, the hit Aerosmith ballad. Cue the music. <laughs> You're my angel. No, Angels. Uh, we're going to talk about Angels um, because we had this sort of idea to, every, sort of like in the way Christian Curiosities is kind of like a series we occasionally visit. We're going to occasionally visit... Um, like mythical, uh, epic sort of 
how would you explain it? Like, like weird it's sort things. Of like a, sort, of, sort of like a continuation of the thing of the series that we did on Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. Yeah. 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 Things you don't normally talk about that are in the Bible that like really sort of emphasize the amazing stuff that happens, the, the very the very mythic stuff that happens. Yeah, the Bible. The it's, it's it's one of the things I like to say to Bible students, and I've said it over the years when I've taught Bible, is that one of the one of the worst things that we've done is we've made the Bible boring. Yeah. Um, like a self help. You know, book. Th- this is a. Yeah, you know, basic instructions before leaving Earth. I hate that bumper sticker. <laughs> like, there's dragons in this book. Yeah. There's a witch. There's ghosts. There's heavy metal album art come to life. There's a bear that eats a bunch of kids. There's a bear because they call him bald. <laughs> yeah. There's a talking donkey. Right. There's a giant, there's a whale that eats a dude. And pukes him up. Was it a whale or a giant fish? So some people actually think that it could be um, it could be a Goliath grouper, which hist- historically uh, and somewhat ironically was known as a Jew fish. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I want to launch into jokes, but I feel like that would probably be anti-Semitic. But that's fine. It would be, but what's funny is that it, you know, if it is a Goliath grouper, historically known as a Jew fish, and it features prominently in a famous story about a Jew who got eaten by a fish, like that's <laughs> there, there's there's something there, right? Um, but yeah, no, there's uh, there's uh, yeah, there's there's all kinds of speculation about about that. That that's an episode we could do. We could do an episode on what ate Jonah. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. So that's that's kind of this is going to be the first in that uh, sort of reoccurring series, much like Christian Curiosities. In this episode, we're going to be talking about angels, how to recognize them, we're going to define them, and also, most importantly, how to catch one. (laughs) Oh, you know how to catch an angel. I do. Um, (laughs) It's like Ghostbusters. You say, get her, and everyone just... (laughs) Maybe not. It involves a mirror pack. and a crystal. <laughs> it involves a mirror and a crystal and some arcane words. Uh, you have to have a bell, uh, a piano tuner. Um, oh, don't forget the salt. You need some salt. They really like sugar. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Demons are the salt. It's the, yeah, it's the sugar. Pixie sticks will do. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Michael with uh, John Travolta where he plays Michael the, the Archangel? <laughs> I did not. I, I did. It's very it's a very boomer movie. And that yeah. it mostly stars a bunch of boomers and it's extremely boring. <laughs> Actually, you know what, maybe I have seen it. I don't know. That came in around that also came around that that you know, around the same time as City of Angels. Yeah. Oh man. Oh wow. Nick speaking of Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Which is a remake of uh, uh Wings of Desire, a German uh art film. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, by Wim Wenders, who directed Paris, Texas, a beautiful film. Um, it's actually pretty cool. It's in black and white, and it's actually it's nothing like City of Angels. <laughs> uh, but the, the premise is the same. Angels are like these dudes. That's a movie that that movie that telegraphs its important death way too much. Yeah. <laughs> who directed City of Angels? That wasn't. Was that my guy Joel Schumacher? No, it couldn't have been. I, you know what? I want to say it is. 
you know, I that was my first date movie, City of Angels. And oh. uh, my date didn't even sit next to me. Oh, dude. Yeah. Brad, oh, dude. Brad Silberling. Okay, uh, yeah. The Silberling joint. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I said we were talking about angels, I said we're just going to talk about the filmography of Brad Silberling. Silberling was born in Washington, D.C., the son of Joyce Ann, a travel consultant, and Robert Murray Silberling, who was vice president of CBS Entertainment Productions. Oh, come on. Nepotism. His father was born Jewish. Hey. Whereas his mother converted to Judaism. Silberling attended Harvard Westlake School in Studio City, California, and graduated in 1981. Silberling then attended Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and transferred to the University of California, Santa Barbara. Graduate of the BA in English. Going, aren't you? He later studied film directing at the UCA, UCLA Film Film School. Um, that's just, you know, it's not a hard life at all. His first film was Casper. So what did you think about Casper, Chuck? Because I know you watched it in preparation for this. <laughs> did not. <laughs> I wish I okay. had a joke ready. All he right. does look like... I, oh, here's my thoughts on Casper. It's... It's clan propaganda. He's a Klansman. I don't know. <laughs> uh, fun fact about Casper, uh, M. Night Shyamalan put off this writing The Sixth Sense because he saw Casper. He felt that he was, he was like chasing the hockey puck, you know? <laughs> Instead of just ripping off Are You Afraid of the Dark? Exactly. All right. Listen, hmm. stop fooling around. Let's... Let's, Let's get to this, angels. right? There's a meme. This Here's the thing, guys. Yeah. There's a meme on the internet about angels. Yeah. And we're just trying to cash in on the meme. <laughs> We've done a really good job of sort of capturing the zeitgeist with our episodes. Um, yeah. And this thing just kind of popped up. Uh, and the meme behind Like the angels. angels. They just sort of pop up. Yeah. And I do think that the meme around angels is pretty funny because it's like, what is the meme? I mean, it's basically like... The meme is basically that biblical angels are like the most like objectively horrifying description of like a creature you can think of, right? They're yeah. like twenty-seven wings and like eyes within eyes and like right. They're, they're monsters. Yeah, like beings with like five faces of like different animals and stuff, and yeah, yeah, um, and they and they always and they always move in a straight line, <laughs> right. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by this because I think what's interesting about it in, in the video, in the eight minute video that I watched, uh, they mentioned that, um, most the, of these beings that we describe as angels actually probably aren't angels. That's like not really Correct. an accurate description of them, that they are simply heavenly beings and yes. that what the, the actual angel, the messenger of God, uh, would, would be like one class of the hierarchy of those heavenly beings, right? Yes. You tell me. You're the one with the degrees behind you. I, <laughs> I've just got a big blue wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, so here's, yeah. So the the, the Bible, yeah. It's it's sort of popular to talk about bio, about angels. And when people make this joke on the internet that angels in the Bible are like horrifying, um, honestly, they kind of would be closer in both concept and appearance to the angels that appear in Evangelion. Right. Um, uh, but this is, um, which we'll get into that because I think that show actually does something very interesting. But, um, um, 
but yeah, angels, it better be better to say like maybe angelic beings, but like the word angel, angelus, is what it derives from, which is um, uh, the, the, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible's preferred word for um, not, not, oh, not, I can't remember the Hebrew word, but anyway, um, it's a word that basically means messenger. Right. And they are depicted as frequently humanoid, like human look, like oh, you're thinking of the male. the malak. Yeah, that's it, the malak. Yeah, um, that they are that they are humanoid. They are human in appearance. I was going to say humanoid. They are human in appearance. Mm-hmm. They are male. Most they're they're they are depicted as masculine, male male looking. So whether or not that well, but Jesus, of course, tells us they don't have gender. Um, but they, yeah, they, they tend to be referred to in, in, in male language in the Bible. Um, and they are basically the beings that deliver God's words to people. Okay. So they carry God's words and the idea, we'll talk about the, how they've developed over time, probably a little bit, but like the idea of the wings is sort of the idea of the speed with which they carry the message. Um, is the idea, but yeah, so that's one level of these, these celestial beings that exist in a hierarchy that all sort of surround the throne of God as depicted in Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, um, Enoch, all these other crazy books that, um, that you can read that are outside of the biblical canon, but part of a very rich tradition of literature known as apocalypse. Okay. Which means hidden. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the 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 Malak, the these human ish angels. Yeah, your your Gabriels, your Michaels, your Raphaels. Right. Are these the ones that like like that kill people? Like the one that like uh, you know, in in um the one that killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt. And that no. No. That is specifically that's a specific being. I mean it 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 could be I, I'm trying to think of the references where that where that angel and I'm trying to remember the name, the, the, the Hebrew name for that, because within Judaism it's very important that they speak of it in its Hebrew name. Hmm. Um but it's I don't in general it's not depicted as having shape or form okay it's just like death like it's just the power of death right in in creation yeah yeah because that you know when i think about angels like there are some prominent ones who think god sends to like kind of go to war with people like they're to protect people Mm -hmm. and i'm kind of wondering like which ones those are um, well, Michael Michael plays an important role in this. John Travolta. John Travolta, right? Yes, um, of course. John Travolta. Yeah, he plays an important role in the Bible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's he's always so, just standing there, wondering where where everything is, just looking around. Where's, where's Israel? Where are they? I'm here to protect them. Where are they? Um, so no. So all right. So I'll, I'll, here's I'll just give a little my my understanding of how this works and my little theories and stuff. Uh, mostly, but just, anyway is that this concept of celestial beings and all of that, it's reflective of 
the ancient Middle East, which is, of course, the cultural milieu where Israel comes up. Um, but that it takes on a different and deeper tenor when Israel, well, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, is exiled in the Babylonian Empire. Because the Babylonians, which of course themselves develop their religion out of various Mesopotamian religious ideas and imagery, um, that Israel, while in this time of captivity, with their temple destroyed, their homeland destroyed, um, are seeking to account for how this all works. These the, the, the Babylonians have their particular religious ideas. The Jews have theirs. They're trying to preserve it in the midst of all of this, um, of all of this uh, pagan stuff around them. These oppre this oppressor that has them in, in, in you know, uh, exiled all throughout the Mediterranean world. And one of the things that they, of course, see is they see all of these different, you know, well, one of the things that Babylon has is that Babylon has like entities that, like a city can be embodied in an entity, mm -hmm. um, some sort of divine being that sort of corresponds as like the heavenly counterpart of the earthly thing. So like closest thing we've got probably in American folklore is the figure of Columbia, who is traditionally seen as sort of the spiritual embodiment of America. Right. So Babylon had these kinds of ideas, too, where the the city like Babylon has like a person or whatever. So the so Jews in this era in this era uh, came up with, well, like if they all get their protector, then we have to have a protector, too. And so this is where Michael steps in, that Michael is the heavenly representative and protector of the Jewish people. Hmm. And so he takes on, even though he's spoken of as an angel, um, he's not explicitly a messenger, but he is also one who can wage war with the spiritual powers that seek to oppress Israel and can fight on their behalf. And that when Israel does fight, they sort of are falling into like his work and supporting him in their, in their, uh, war of whatever which of course becomes much more important after the exile when the roman when the when the greeks come in and all this other history that i could just go on and on about but i won't mm -hmm. because i'm sure our listeners just love hearing about it <laughs> um but this opens up but the, I, I just mentioned this because i think this whole hierarchy of celestial beings that we'll talk about owe a lot of their existence to babylonian religion and that this is this is Jews' attempt, the, like, this is the Judeans' attempt at accounting for what they're seeing around them and using this religious imagery and language to articulate what they believe hmm. as well. And which to me shows how nimble these religions can be. Um, yeah, because there are, when you, when you read this sort of... Um descriptions of, of some of these um beasts they're they're very reminiscent of like other mythical creatures from around that area around from the same time you've had like the sphinx you have like mm -hmm. the, the griffin um and even you're talking about babylon what's that one babylonian thing i keep forgetting the name of the the, the it's like a has like the head of a man 
Body of a lion. Oh. Has wings. Lamasu. The Lamasu? Oh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. It's got like the head of Nebuchadnezzar or something. Right. Um, no, I just think it's interesting because it's like, uh, that's sort of common in that area and different surrounding countries of these, uh, uh, you know, these creatures sort of resemble it. Um, okay. So we, we discussed the, the Malak. I want to go up the hi- I want to go up the hierarchy. Okay. Okay. Um, even though I think the Malak is actually skipping one. Let's go to the cherubim. Okay. Which is where the word Griffin gets its root, by the way, the cherubim. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Interesting. The cherubim uh, are not uh, little babies flying around making people fall in love with each other, right? No, no, they are not. That's that's actually the putty from uh, Renaissance from the Renaissance period, oh. uh, and uh, and that's where the, the word cherub comes from. That, but it's yeah, the putty goes off. It's a it's a it's a Grecian motif that was big uh, during the Renaissance period, and uh, later led to confusion uh, about do some various various wacky circumstances uh, over time that made the church lose its true image of what the what the cherubim are yeah is it have to do with like kind of like trying to integrate people into the church by using their religion to kind of describe Christianity or, or at least the biblical scripture no i mean again the cherubs become a thing in um in renaissance art based off of um utilizing rome like greco-roman artistic motifs and i and they're i i can't remember I, back when i you know i took like art history and stuff back in college but that's been a long time ago yeah. um almost 20 years jp um don't don't remind me and uh uh and um so i'm so like i i really don't remember what the pooty represented other than that, you know, they, they fought the power Rangers a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, they're, 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 these are little like winged. They play they, again. There's they're some Greco Roman religious thing. And I don't know if it's like innocence or, or mischief or what the deal is, but they were, they were often painted onto, uh, these Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. I'm named after the Archangel Michael. Um, would um, would include them in their art, and that led to the assumption that the cherubim are these little innocent angel beings floating around, um, whereas the the cherubs, uh, the putty, aren't even like in the same concept of the angelic from the Bible. It's possible that like Leonardo and like Raphael and and uh, and uh, Michelangelo that they like that they all didn't put the cherubs in there because they didn't want to terrify people in church <laughs> right. if they put them properly um, or, or whatever. But yeah, I understand that that just grows out of a, a certain kind of misunderstanding that I don't remember much about it. Hmm. But if you go into Orthodox churches, like, 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 you know, you're Greek, you're, you're Russian, you're, you're, uh, you're Latvian. Um, they will have in their artwork proper cherubim, which are like these faces covered in wings and stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, so the, but, the, but the cherub, the, the idea of the cherubim or the cherubim, um, as I understand it, it's part connection with Babylon and the Babylonian religious concept, but it also has to do with divine mathematics. Hmm. Really? 
Yeah, because like the fact that the cherubim have four faces right. represents the idea that they that they embody the four cardinal directions, which is sacred because it's the four cardinal directions where God was present at creation, the altar, uh, the altar in the you know are the ark of the ark of the covenant and the altar you know they have what is the ark of the covenant has the two cherubim uh, or whatever depicted over the the the, the seat, but then the actual altar itself has four horns which represent the four cardinal cardinal directions, and so like there's all if you look at the descriptions of these in like Daniel and Ezekiel, it you know they have everything is everything in their bodies is listed in particular numbers and that also do with like sacred geometry and all this stuff that Kabbalah gets really into. Yeah. Um, I mean, that it just, it makes, it makes the Bible far more mystical. It kind of makes Christianity a more mystical belief when I think about how elaborate these creatures are. And also like mm-hmm. just how kind of reminds me of, cosmic horror a little bit <laughs> like yeah no kind totally of lovecraftian in a way yeah because i mean it's the idea of like eldritch it's the idea of seeing yeah it's like the idea of seeing perfection from the perspective of flaw right and so you're 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 aware of the juxtaposition and how like it doesn't measure up and how just like off it is i mean talking about our our, our boy uh you know denny villanova you know, I think it's one of the things that he does really effectively with his uh, like with his UFO designs in Arrival is how you have these like very perfect geometric ships, but they're appearing in like jagged natural settings. And just that yeah. juxtaposition makes it feel eerie. Right. Right. And that's sort of the similar kind of thing, because, you know, the idea of the, the cherubim having these four faces and four basically directions in them is that, and like Ezekiel goes that this, they move always in a straight line. They don't turn. Hmm. So like, and they, so that means that from all four directions, they can see all directions at the same time. They have no need to turn when they have to move up, down, whatever they can, you know, so they can inhabit, you know, a, you know, basically a hypercube level of reality. Um, kind of makes you wonder if they're trying to explain that they exist in different planes that are yeah. unknowable to us uh, mortals. Yeah, because you know what a hypercube is, right? Not really. Okay, so a hypercube, all right, so we have a cube, right? You know, that's a three-dimensional object, a cube, right? The next level up in a four-dimensional, or I guess fifth-dimensional, is it, would be the Tesseract, okay. right? right? So... If you take a if you take a cube and you fold it into a two dimensional sphere, into or into a, into a two dimensional object, right? You get that thing. It looks like a cross, but you know how you can unfold a cube and you can use like paper to build a cube. Mm-hmm. Okay. Within within um, when you start looking at other dimensional realities, if you were to do that same principle to a tesseract and you were to unfold a tesseract, you would get a three dimensional object known as a hypercube. Um, Salvador Dali painted a really cool image of Jesus being crucified on a hypercube because it looks cruciform, but it's in three dimensions. Um, and uh, so like this whole, anyway, it's just, the point being is that I think you're right, that they, that, that you know, the, that these ancient peoples 
had a higher understanding of math and physics and the idea of other planes of reality yeah. earlier than we, you know, white people who supposedly discovered all this stuff, you know, did. Um, and I think that, yeah, that they're depicting, they're, they're basically trying to say like, what would a, you know, sort of conjecturing out, what does a creature that live in this reality look like? Right. Right. How would it appear? What it would it be? Or even crazier, maybe they're having actual visions of things living in these realities. And this is the only way they can reconcile them from a three-dimensional mind. Right. Um, you know, so like, that's like I say, you get into some really crazy, heady, scary stuff when you think about it. And that's one of the reasons why when people see this stuff, their first reaction is to grovel and cry. Yeah. Um, aren't they doing something in the verses that are described, something like throwing fire at each other or something like that? Or lightning? One of the, in Daniel, they talk about that, I think. Yeah. Um, or is that the Ezekiel? Hold on. Ezekiel's the one that I love because it's the one with the. I've got actually Ezekiel open right here. It's the one with the wheels, which we'll talk about the wheels, right? Right. Um, but these creatures, the the, the cherubim, right? So in case in case any of our listeners have never listened to the Bible, here we go. Um, there's a storm, and inside that storm are four living creatures. They looked like this. They had the form of a human being, though each had four faces and four wings. Their feet looked like proper feet, but the soles of their feet were like calves of, and they shone like burnished bronze. Human hands were under their wings on all four sides. So that's the other thing. Four wings is not four wings. It's wings front, back, and side to side. Huh. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, and so it could be four pairs of wings, too. Um, all, all four creatures had faces and wings and their wings touched each other's wings. When they moved, they went straight ahead without turning. As for the form of their faces, each of the four had a human face with a lion's face on the right and a bull's face on the left and also an eagle's face. The pairs of wings that stretched out overhead touched each other while the other pairs covered their bodies. Each moved straight ahead wherever the wind propelled them. They moved without turning. Um, regarding the creatures forms, they looked like blazing coals, like torches, fire darted out between the creatures and illuminated them and lightning flashed from the fire. The creatures looked like lightning streaking back and forth. And it's really funny. Like I, I'm imagining now, like these artists, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael, uh, Splinter, um, <laughs> like being commissioned by the church to draw these depictions of angels and being like, you want me to, I, I can't. You're getting babies, okay? Babies with wings. <laughs> I can do babies. <laughs> like, yeah. Dolly hasn't been born yet, guys. Hold on. <laughs> no. Yannick um, isn't here, so just you have to wait. I mean, it's interesting because, like, you know, you look at all sort of illustrated versions of this from, like, throughout time and history, and there's, you can tell that there's a bit of a struggle, right? Uh, because, mm -hmm. the, you know, creating three-dimensionally on, on paper, like, was... was it's a fairly new thing, right? I I love I love the orthodox depiction of of the of the of the um, of the cherubim. I don't know if you've ever seen an orthodox icon of the um of You'll see. Well, I'm going to pull it up because it, it works for. So like, here's an orthodox icon of. The cherubim. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and what's funny about it is they're really banking on the fact that, like, oh, the Bible says the wings cover it up, so we're just going to draw the wings covering it's it up just so we don't wings. have to try to figure out the other stuff. 
I do love the look on on that that one particular icon's face. Like he's peeking at, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you can't see my you can't see my ox face. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to see these faces, dude. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, but I had to think of like, what if the wings somehow were to emerge? What would you see, right? It'd be like that. Yeah, it'd be like remember in uh, in Scrooged when Bill Murray like opens Death's robes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like all the souls. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be creepy. Cool. All right, so that's Cherubim, a uh, fairly metal creature. Um, yeah. Talked about Malak. So next one's Seraphim. Yeah, the Seraphim, which these are like the animals. Okay. Right? These Are, are these the ones that are only saying holy, like holy, the heavenly holy. beasts. Heavenly Aren't beasts. these the heavenly beasts? Yeah. Yeah, these are the heavenly beasts, and that's like all they do is worship. Yeah. Yeah. What is like... Okay, so that that's their function is that they just worship, um, right? Like, like how do, how are they sort of revealed in the Bible? I think they're in Revelation. Like, uh, they, they also show up in Daniel. Um, these are the ones that I think are probably the most close analog to like Phoenician and Babylonian deities. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel talks about the heavenly court. This also shows up in the Book of Job where God speaks to the heavenly court. Yeah. And this is to me a really fascinating idea because um, not only do we have the issue of the fact that Hasatan, the accuser, is in the room when God addresses the heavenly court, yeah. um, but that basically the it shows that, so something that we have as a result of the Protestant Reformation, and particularly here in America, the fact that we had so many Puritans who just like, took to this very particular de- definition of things. Right. Um, they neglected that the Hebrew Bible never denies the existence of other gods. Hmm. The Hebrew Bible just says that Yahweh is above all other gods. Right. And so basically revealing that the gods of the nations are lesser beings. And so the idea here is that, yeah, these other gods do exist. They are part of this celestial hierarchy of beings, but they are subservient to the one Lord who is above and has no peer. Hmm. And so this is this to me is the way that ancient Jews sort of account for everything. Right. There's there because, you know, here. You know, if you're around all these people who believe other, you know, believe in other gods, right? You can't just be like, ah, pff, you guys are full of it, right? Well, like, no, you, you know, you, you came out of this too, right? So it's still there. So, how do you account for this reality? How do you account for the fact that other nations, you know, sometimes even see their gods perform miraculous deeds right. and other things like that? It's to say, well, they exist. We're not denying that. It's just they're not worthy of the worship that you give them because there is a God above them. And that's the one who is worthy of worship and that we need to have these things put in proper perspective. It's not the denial of their existence. It's just putting them in their place. Um, and that's why in I think it's Psalm 98, either Psalm 68 or Psalm 98, I can't remember which, song, which one. It's, I know it's a something eight um, is where God talks to the divine assembly and demotes them. Um, says you were, people called you gods, but now you are like men. Um, and that's a Psalm that was probably written during the Babylonian period as a way to like emphasize the superiority of Israel's gods in the face of these other gods. Yeah. 
a really long time ago, when I was like kind of just starting out in college and learning about Joseph Campbell, I, I read some book about comparative religion, and he pointed out something really that I thought was really fascinating. He talked about, and you can help me remember who, who it was that did this because I can't remember at all. In the Old Testament, there's a part where a prophet asks the believers of one God to build a pyre and to light it on fire or something and to pray to their God to like put it out and it, he doesn't do it like it doesn't work and then they ask uh and then he asks the Jews to do the same thing and sets it on fire yeah you're talking about you're talking about Elisha's contest uh contest with the prophets of Baal yes or Baal as you might hear yeah exactly because I was writing a script where Baal was a villain and my main character was a descendant <laughs> of Elisha. Yeah, that's right. It's all coming back to me now. Um, that's really... a funny story, by the way, because Elisha straight up mocks them. Yeah. And he mocks Baal because they're they're like it gets to the point where they're like cutting themselves to try to get because they believed in like you know that like blood had this mystical ability to manifest Baal or whatever Baal, and so they're like cutting themselves and flipping out and is and and Elisha just goes no joke like the English translations. The English translations say like, oh, he's gone on a journey. But Hebrew scholars will tell you straight up that that's a euphemism for sitting on the can. <laughs> so basically he's saying like, eh, maybe your God can't hear you because he's he's taking a crap. He's on the <laughs> he's on the toilet. He's having a tough time in there. That's funny. Yeah. Um, but like um, in this in this text that I wrote, I, I mean, I think it was Joseph Campbell. He was illustrating that like by doing that, he was acknowledging that that God existed. Um. Not that, like, he didn't exist and you should follow God, but, like, mine is actually better than yours. Mine will actually listen to you. Right. And even in in that moment, and I don't remember what he used as proof of this, but he was, I think he was just sort sort of illustrating something, but saying, like, in that moment, God had, like, defeated and killed Baal. Like, that was, like, the belief or something. Yeah, that God effectively, yeah, that that Baal, yeah, that Baal had, Baal had been... Yeah, had been yeah humiliated at the very least. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's exactly the point, right? If 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 there was, I mean, one can make the case that Ezekiel's trying to get up there and be like, I know that they don't believe in anything, and nothing's ever really going to happen, and so I'm just going to lay on display the fact that their God is nothing. Yeah. Right. You could you could make the case that that, that it is that way, but I think it's a little bit more. I think it's a little bit more. Um, nuance than that because i think it's akin to there's a story here in hawaii about um princess um princess uh kapilani um who had found out after she became a christian found out that over at kilauea on the big island people were still worshiping pele and were like living in fear of pele constantly and she didn't she's like we have to stop this like you can't be afraid of this anymore you know like you know her belief was that you know that there is a that there is a God above Pele and Pele answers to that God and that God has told us not to be afraid. Hmm. And so, uh, and so, um, Capulani, she journeys across like 200 miles of like lava barefoot and wow. she gathers these sacred berries that were supposed to be reserved only for Pele. And she walks down to the edge of the lava crater and throws the berries in the lava in defiance and like all the priests of Pele are like, don't do it, don't do it. Like, you know, Pele's gonna kill you and then Pele's gonna get mad and all anyway. And she does it and she just sort of walks around like in the area that she wasn't supposed to be. It's supposed to be like sacred to Pele and nothing happens. 
Hmm. Right. But her point was not to say Pele doesn't exist, but was to say that Pele, Pele answers to a higher power now. Like we know this. And so we don't have to be afraid of Pele. You know, I represent as a, you know, I believe in this higher power and, um, but yeah, so it's that same kind of thing, right? Like it's not the denial of the, the existence of other things, but it's saying that they serve a purpose. And that's, and that's kind of, that's where things get tough. And like we try to interpret the book of Job because Hasatan, where, where we get the word Satan, the adversary, the accuser yeah. is in the heavenly court. Mm-hmm. And Hasatan in that story plays a role. And like part of what Job is trying to say is, is that bad things do happen to people, but that's not out of that's not outside of God's purview, and that 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 short term badness might be serving a long term good, right. or whatever. And that kind of ties into stuff that like Paul says about Pharaoh with the Exodus is that, you know, that you know God hardened his heart so that his, you know, so that his glories could be you know, made manifest through, through Pharaoh, but you can interpret it as saying easily like Pharaoh could have, Pharaoh could have played game, played ball or Pharaoh could resist, but either way, God's glory was going to be declared. Do you think people um, like, this is sort of, this is so t- tangential, but I'm interested in your mm-hmm. opinion anyway. Do you think people like really oversimplify the book of Job? Yes. Like, how do you feel about that? Because I feel like most people, a lot of people are sort of using it as an, as a way of being like, look how, look at how cruel, this religion is the God and Satan are just like playing with this guy's life just because for fun or to prove a point or whatever. Like, do you think that's sort of an, open, yeah. do you think it's oversimplification? I, I, I kind of do. Actually, I did a sermon on Job a few months, uh, about a month or two back. Um, I, what I think Job is, is I think Job is in a similar literary genre as um, Ecclesiastes. Um, Rob Bell, um, when Matt and I went to see Rob Bell, several years back, Rob Bell talked about how Ecclesiastes is the wisdom beyond wisdom, that it's the sort of book that's written to explain, like, I've, you know, you live your life the way Proverbs tells you to live your life, which is, you know, the typical wisdom, the conventional wisdom uh, of sorts that we, you know, it's like basically do good things and good things happen to you. Well, or, or do good things and good things are likely to happen to you. What happens when you do everything right and bad things still happen? So Ecclesiastes attempts to address that. And I think Job attempts to address that. What I actually think Job is, is I think Job is a story written after the Babylonian exile. And there's a whole thing. Like I, I, I talk about this a lot here at St. Mary's, but I think much of the, much of the Hebrew Bible as we have it, and I, you know, scholars are agreeing with this and it's sort of blowing my mind as I'm learning it, is that much of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we have it, exists after the Babylonian exile. And so a lot of the stuff is dealing with the aftermath and the trauma of that exile and what it means. Um, but anyway, the um, I believe Job is a story meant to illustrate and deal with the fact that there were people who were faithful Jews doing what God expected of them. And then Babylon came around and destroyed them. Like, because all the other prophetic writings are all about how, like, everyone's wicked and God is punishing the wicked for, you know, for whatever by how, you know, it's a Babylon is God's punishment for, for whatever. But there were still people that didn't rebel. There were still people who were good and decent, and this bad thing happened. And so I think Job is partly an attempt at trying to make sense of that. 
and to say that that the ultimate conclusion and, and, and suggestion of the story is that God God is God and God has God God has a, a perspective on all of this that we are unable to comprehend. And that like the last chapter of Job is less about God being defensive and being like, whoa, 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 who are you to question me? Is God basically instead saying, look, unless you're the per unless you're unless you're an equal to me, you unfortunately can't understand. And I just need you to trust me that I have humanity's best interest or I have your best interest at heart, right? Like our humanity's best interest at heart. And I, and so I think that that's what Job is. And again, I think we do oversimplify it way too much. And we use, and plus it's a book that's of kind of questionable historical canonical status in the Bible anyway. Like it's not treated as like that big a deal throughout much of the Bible. And it always cracks me up when a certain type of internet atheist loves to gravitate to it as like, see, the whole thing is bad. And it's like, well, most of us who believe the Bible are still kind of on the fence about Job anyway. <laughs> so like, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, but yeah, anyway, that was, that sort of, yeah, well, I know it's a bit of a, a yeah. Well, thing, I, but. I, I've always thought like, I love the South Park joke surrounding Job because I feel like they kind of understand like how people sort of misuse Job because there's a part who was, I think it was, was it Kyle who was like dying and his mom tells him the story of Job, but he just, it just oh, ends right. with like all the terrible things happening and like, and that's it. <laughs> and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Why would that happen? <laughs> is that the one where Kyle is dying of AIDS? I think so. And then they find out that like, Money is what cures it. <laughs> I don't remember, dude. It's been a long time, but I just thought that was kind um, of funny on there. But I, th I mean, because it it showed yeah. that I think they get it. Um, that Job is yeah. like just a really complicated story, and it can't be like it, it can't be right. like parabolized, I guess, in a way. You know, like right. Well, when when again, when we treat the Bible like it's basic instructions before leaving Earth, or yeah. we treat it as a collection of like greeting card sentiments right. right and it's this inspirational book that's going to empower you it's a like book a, like, like job fables. does yeah like job doesn't make sense like job doesn't work yeah right because it's a story about a dude who's never told that he is like rachel lee cook's character in she's all that yeah. you know like between this bet between these two people it never addresses the problem of why God feels he needs to prove anything to Satan anyway. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, and Job never finds out. And at the end, God's basically just like, unless you're me, you can't understand, but here's seven more kids. So enjoy that. <laughs> um, check out. Yeah. I uh, mean, I think it's a, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's a it's a complicated book that doesn't easily resolve, and for us to try to understand it, you know, three thousand years removed from the time in which it was written, right. and in the circumstances in which it was written, mm -hmm. that that's tough. That's that's just, that's just a tough thing. Shoot an episode on it. Let's yeah simplify it. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's simplify Joe. Um, um, I mean, it's poetry. That's the other thing. It's poetry. Right, poetry right. isn't easily resolvable. Yeah. So what at what part at what part of the hierarchy is Satan or Lucifer or whoever it is? 
character was in it? Is he? Uh, is he? Is he? Oh man, Malak. Is he? I would, I would venture to guess that he's Malak. Yeah. Um, but I don't know because Satan is such a complicated figure in the Bible. Again, w- how we understand Satan. Um, is largely due to like Dante's Inferno right. and Milton's Paradise Lost and like Renaissance art depictions and medieval right. and it could be like beliefs three different about characters him. anyway. Yeah, the Bible the Bible talks about this figure, the adversary or the accuser, in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've conflated this figure into one understanding. Like the whole idea of him being the light bearer, the Lucifero, Lucifer, um, who fell from heaven. Well, a lot of scholars seem to think that that's Daniel's way of talking about a certain, like, I think Antiochus Epiphanes IV, um, one of uh, the guy who ended up, um, uh, the Greek king who ended up uh, really brutalizing, um, really brutalizing uh, Jewish culture and religion and is the figure that leads to the story of Hanukkah, um, the, the rebellion that leads to the story of Hanukkah. Um you know, so but a lot of scholars think that that Daniel is actually talking about an actual historical person, not some fallen angel. And the whole idea of fallen angels is a suspect concept, hmm. if you for the Bible, um, that it's more something, more of a later understanding. Because like, even the word demon, like, this is something we could talk about too, yeah. is the word demon, daimon in Greek was just a term that referred to the Greek gods and it wasn't meant to be a word of negative connotation. And when Paul and others employ it in the new Testament, they're using it in the then current Greek sense. They're not talking about necessarily evil beings. They are talking about a whole range of supernatural beings, some good, some bad, some indifferent. Hmm. And, and so like that, when you, when you, when you read the, the, the when you read stuff like, sacrificing to demons that Paul talks about in, I think it's like first Corinthians or whatever, when you read it, but you read it from the perspective that he's not talking about like eat your soul, you know, <laughs> come out of your backwards back masking record. Right. You're talking about just like a whole range of things that people worship in ancient Greek society. It takes on a very different tenor. So when people he's are basically like, saying, like why are you wasting your time with this thing that we think is ultimately like secondary to God at best empty, you know, at worst or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's not like demon worship or demon possession as we think about it today. So like when people are possessed in the Bible, it's not demons or. Well, no, it would be like when we talk about possession and we talk about demon possession. Yeah. What they're talking about there is. Some some demons are good, some are bad, some right, are indifferent, right. okay. and so these are evil demons that have in, that have possessed people. But there's a part in Acts that no one talks about, which is there's a part where Paul shows up uh, on one of his missionary journeys, and there's this girl that says she was possessed by a spirit of divination, and she's running around saying, "Hey, you should listen to these guys. They talk about Jesus." And like this spirit is saying, like, these are good guys. You should listen to him. But Paul gets really annoyed with her and he casts the demon out. But she's not doing anything bad or harmful. She's being exploited because of the gift that she has, that these guys are making money off of her by enslaving her and using her as a fortune teller for them to make money. So by Paul casting the, de- the casting the spirit out of her, it liberates her from being exploited. But Acts does not present that account as though she's being harmed by this. By in and of itself. And 
And so again, like the Bible presents, the world of the Bible is a far more complex world than what we've made it into in our post-Reformation Western society. Um, You know, I mean, your average person on the street believed that, you know, there were demons and, you know, there, there were all these supernatural celestial creatures that you could sometimes encounter in random places. Right. Um, I think probably the, some of the closest parallels, I think are probably like in Japanese Shinto. Um, it, it, you know, if we look at like Japanese society now where the Shinto and shrine religion is still a big part of the culture, um, you know, people going to certain, you know, shrines for certain festivals and recognizing, you know, I mean, even Marie Kondo buys into some level of Shinto with her whole thing about like, objects in your home feel something yeah it's why you, right? why you tell the it's, t-shirt thank you before you throw it away exactly right yeah. this is a very shinto but roman society probably wasn't all that different right and so the christians are developing and articulating their theology in, in the midst of that world and taking a lot of that for granted and again like what paul and others are ultimately i think saying in their writings is just like like it's not wrong, like it's not inherently wrong to, to like acknowledge that these things exist. It's wrong to worship them because they're not the God. Like ultimately they can't accomplish anything. It's the, it, Paul's frustrated with his own Judaism and its adherence to the law and the pagans that he sees for the same reason, which is like something better has come. So we don't have to do this other stuff anymore. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make is just like, you just don't have to do that anymore. And plus, I mean, well, on the pagan side, he's very disturbed by practices of ty- of, of like temple prostitution and things like that, that he thinks are, you know, awful and exploitative and degrading and should be stopped. But, um, but I think like from a theological standpoint, Paul's bigger point is like, like something better has come. So we don't have to worry about this anymore. Right. And he's coming from a, mindset that's similar to what we're talking about here, taking for granted the idea that these other gods probably do exist and that they serve some purpose of the one God. You know, they ultimately are supposed to worship him because God created them to be beings that worship him. And if they've rebelled too, then they have their own punishment and their own issues. But like, you know, it's not a denial of their existence, but it is an accounting for it in this cosmology that we have in the Bible. All right. um, So seraphim. Uh, <laughs> Sorry if that was too much. No, it's not. Um, seraphim, all wings, all eyeballs. Um, yes. If if I were a hip hop artist, Chuck, I would have not a hype man, but hype men, and I would call them my seraphim. There you go. Just to illustrate <laughs> that point and drive that home. I would also not perform at Astro World. Um, yeah, not, not, not a good idea. No. <laughs> yeah, just throw it for that little SEO there. Um, okay, so let's move on to this uh, last part of the hierarchy. And I think I'm pronouncing this right. That off, offenim, orphanim. Spell it. O p h a n i m. I'm not. Offenim. Offenim. Eem. That eem, that I am at the end, eem suffix, that's the plural. That's the plural suffix in Hebrew. So anytime you see eem, it's referring to like multitudes. So like seraphim. Yeah. 
Yeah. I got you. Um, and these are the wheels. Um, and I think Rock that's what me, they mama, like a wagon wheels. <laughs> Um, I, I think that's what I think it's what kind of what they're literally called. Like they're they're referred to as the wheels, and these are the yeah, ones that are, they, and they only show up in Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel, and not much is known about them because they only have that one part of Ezekiel. And this is what conspiracy theorists believe are like UFOs, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and what do they do? They're like they they carry the chariot of God, or. Uh... They carry the chariot of God. They also carry the seraphim. Okay. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the cherubim. They also carry the cherubim in, in uh, Ezekiel. Um, yeah, they're, they're, this, is the, this, this to me is where... All right, so you know, the, you know, you know American Gods, that Neil Gaiman, yeah. Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things I think fascinating, right, about American Gods is how... There's the newer gods, and it's like the god of television, yeah. the god of whatever. I kind of think that Ezekiel is reflecting a similar kind of spirit that's happening in the Babylon. Because you know, so Ezekiel's story is Ezekiel is carted off to Babylon, just like he's one of the priests in the temple, and he is carted off to Babylon during the the final siege and whatever, along with like Daniel. Uh, the folk hero figure, Daniel, not necessarily the prophet Daniel. That's another conversation. Um, and so Ezekiel is having these visions after now being in exile. And what I'm thinking is, you know, seeing this Babylonian world and that the Babylonians were able to, con- you know, do so much conquest because of the power of their chariots, right? That this is a sort of reflecting a spiritualizing of technology because right like the wheels of a chariot right that is like that's like a tank you know what i mean like that's Mm -hmm. that is vastly superior military technology um and the babylonians would no doubt have put their faith in that and probably mythologized it to a degree the way that every society mythologizes its you know military technology and so that this is that this is Ezekiel's way of talking about God's wheels and, you know, the way that Babylonian and Assyrian wheels had managed to conquer the Middle East and all conquering powers, you know, were able to use wheels to do it. God, God has wheels within wheel and they're wheels that can see and they're wheels that can, you know, they're not hampered by, they're not hampered by the terrain because all land is all ground is straight for God's celestial wheels. That's kind of what I think is going on here. Okay. Um, or or it's a UFO cult, man. And Christianity <laughs> is just like a low key UFO cult. Yeah. That too. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> if you saw the well, if you saw the Nicolas Cage movie, Nicolas Cage getting a lot of uh, press in this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you see the Nicolas Cage movie, Knowing. Um, have you seen that movie? No. Is it okay if I spoil it? I don't care. I'm probably not going to see it. Okay. Well, it's it's Add about it to my list. It's it's about like uh, Nicolas Cage finds these uh, cryptic 
uh, predictions with like numbers and stuff. And he basically, they predict the end of the world and these strange beings are appearing before people and it turns out that they're aliens. Um, but they are also depicted in the, the aliens are also angels. Um, and they kind of show their final form at the end of the movie as like as cherubim. And you see their UFOs in the sky and they look like the wheels. Hmm. So they're basically trying to say the the uh, passage in Ezekiel is was predicting the end of the, the, end of right. the world. Um, well, I remember well, I remember I remember when I was younger probably about eh, fifth grade ish and uh my mom and everyone had decided to do a little family outing to ye old uh burlington coat factory (laughs) and while they were shopping for lord knows what i was wandering the store and i you know burlington was great because they usually had like books and stuff so i was pouring through the books and i found a ufo book I loved it, right? Because you know me, I love the UFO documentaries and all that kind of stuff. So I was flipping through this UFO book, and I remember when I saw the picture, and it talks about Ezekiel's wheels, and I was like, "What? There's UFOs in the Bible?" <laughs> and so immediately went home and picked up the Bible and was like, "Oh my goodness! Like this is cool. There's UFOs in the Bible." And so I've been like sort of fascinated by this passage ever since because that's again, right? This belief that these are flying saucers, right? Yeah. Which is impossible, by the way. Do you know why? Why? Because even the guy... So you know that flying saucers have never, like... Like, the idea of a flying saucer... Like, the first recorded incident of seeing one of these things from an Air Force pilot... His report says they flew in such a way that looked like a a saucer skipping on the surface of water. But he never described them as saucers. He said they were more like... I think, like, oblong, like, cigar-shaped... Right. Yeah. So the whole thing about like flying saucers is a complete misnomer anyway. So hmm. well, that's disappointing. I like saucers. That's a thing. It's, it's a practical design. Um, <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> so uh, angels. Now, uh, the important part, how to catch one. Um, yeah. How do we do it? Really? Stick all a rock you, in front of the wheel. Uh, well, all you have to do is you need a cardboard box and a stick and a piece of string. And you want to tie the string to the stick, prop the cardboard box up with the stick. Oh, okay. Okay. And so then yeah. leave a plate of, um, of what, what, what that angel's favorite food might be. I don't know. You, that's, that's another whole part of it. You got to get to know your angel. You gotta, you gotta find out what he likes. Or they, what they like. We're not going to gender the angels. Uh, they're no, no, just like Constantine didn't. They did a beautiful job with Gabriel. I love, I love <laughs> that they cast Tilda Swinton as Gabriel and depict Gabriel as gender fluid or exactly. non-binary. Yeah, um, we're, we're progressive on this show. Um, so you got to find out what they like to eat. I, I hear chalupas. I don't know. You can, I feel like the angel. I feel like, like angels. I feel like unfortunately angels are probably prone to like forbidden food. Forbidden. You know what I mean, like, I mean, a chalupa is a pretty forbidden. If you, I mean, it, yeah. I'm talking about like the chili cheese bread. I mean, like, stuff that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> okay, it only exists in the idealized form in our heads, because they are themselves the embodiment of idealizations. Okay, well, if you can figure that out, 
Are you talking like spaghetti and ice cream or something? Or what, what, what are you? No, 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 no. I'm talking about like, I'm talking about not like your mom's actual meatloaf, uh-huh. but how you conceive of your mom's meatloaf. Right. Because every time your mom cook, there's a, you have a memory of your mom's meatloaf. Yeah. I don't know. I, this is just hypothetical like for me. Like I have a, I, I love my mom's meatloaf. Uh-huh. But every time I eat my mom's meatloaf, it like, it like will never achieve the level in my mind of what my memory of my mom's meatloaf is. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Yes. Right? That's how I feel about that's you. What it, that's what an angel eats. Right. Exactly. So put your mom under the box is what you're saying. No. 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 I'm saying <laughs> if you could somehow pull like crystallize concretize that particular form of mom's meat love uh, some pizza whatever it is it's in your head that's like the you think like the best thing you've ever eaten mm-hmm. and you like concretize the idea in your brain and put it under the box that's what the angel eats okay and make sure you make enough because you will have to create a trail to the box right 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 uh, contrary to popular belief they do not exist on our shoulders they do not occupy that space is that somewhere on the hierarchy that I that I missed? The shoulder heme. <laughs> the shoulder heme. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the the conscience manifestation. <laughs> that would be one. I would love to know where that came from. Yeah. Where did that concept first originate? Because we take it for granted that that's just a thing, right? The two voices on your shoulder, and the idea that there are two angels on your shoulder, but like. I would love to trace that the history of that. I think we we put it to rest when Emperor's New Groove came out because that was like the best version of that, where Kronk had the evil Kronk and an angelic Kronk. Perfect representation of that joke. Never needed to be made again, except until at this moment where I classify them as the shoulder heme. The shoulder heme, which, you know, again, right, we're talking about ideals, right? These are... The, you know, the angelic beings, right? Not necessarily your, not necessarily your like angels, angels, your messenger angel. We're talking about more along the lines of your, 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 your cherubim, your, I'm, I'm being really insufferable with the whole cherubim <laughs> thing. And I'm doing that intentionally, by the way. I just want everyone to know that. Um, and your seraphim and all the seraphim and all that, that these are, and, and the ophanim. Ophanim. Yeah. Yeah. The Ophanim, that uh, o, o, o is always a long O sound in Hebrew. Um, oh, okay. Ophanim. The Ophanim. Oh, gotcha. Okay. All right. I know that. Um, these are, you know, these are more like, this is more like imaginary things made real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They exist in the realm of the, in the, you know, to use platonic physics, right? They are the, this is, you know, there's the, the, the accidents and the forms, right? These are the form. They exist in the realm of the forms of perfection. Yeah. Right. And so the idea that we're talking about how this depiction of them reached a level of the shoulder eam, reached <laughs> a per, uh, reached their perfection. They have now entered into yeah. that hierarchy in that realm because they now stand alongside, perhaps even on the shoulders of right. the seraphim <laughs> and the... <laughs> And the cherubim, are, 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 the cherubim, is standing on the shoulder of the often. Uh, uh, right? Got a <laughs> guttural. Uh, <laughs> there's something anti-Semitic about me doing that. I don't know. Just proper pronunciation. <laughs> um, 
No, but the but for real though, like I will say in our conversation about this, like that's one of the things I do love about Neon Genesis Evangelion yeah. is that the the angels actually are closer to the depiction of like seraphim of like seraphim and ophanim. Yeah. Cuz like there's that one or there's that one it's just like a diamond. Oh and yeah. It just like wrecks stuff. Yeah, it's just floating around. Yeah. Which was probably and you know, I'm not judging anybody, but it it probably ripped off uh Leviathan, which is an entry in the Hellraiser series. Leviathan was a giant floating diamond that shot lasers at people in the labyrinth of uh, of hell, of the underworld. Uh, also, Pinhead, supposedly an angel. Anyway, I don't want to get into Hellraiser <laughs> in this episode, <laughs> in any of these episodes. Yeah, but but um, I, I I do think it is interesting, right, that we have instead turned angels into like just like dudes with wings or girls with wings right 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 right. and they i mean like when you think of like modern angels you think of like that crap that used to show up as like a image macro on like someone's myspace page and Uh it's all like glittery you know what i'm talking about yes like really just like old school web design yeah angel we we think it's interesting we've done that right clarence the the most famous angel oh right 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 and uh, it's a wonderful life. You know, Christopher Lloyd, of course, hanging out in the outfield. Yeah, right. And then there's those ones that are, you know, that are touching Rumi, whatever her name is, all the time. Rama Down, Ruma Downey. What's her name? Is it Ruma Downey? I, I have no idea. I, I that doesn't sound familiar at all. I'm talking about Touched by an Angel, the show Touched oh. by an Angel. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. The actress. I'm pretty sure her name is Roma Downey. Anyway, she's also the one responsible for like all those like Jesus, the Jesus movie that came out. Yeah. A few years ago that was on TV um, or the Bible and the Jesus. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's just so interesting, right? Like we make angels bored. I mean, even, even like a cool movie, like last temptation of Christ. Right. Kind of makes angels sort of boring. Yeah. Except for Satan. Satan's pretty interesting in that. Movie. Even Constantine, you know, Constantine's probably the coolest depiction, though, of right. like a traditional or sort of, you know, conventional understanding of an angel. But they do a pretty good thing, pretty good job of it. And kind of hinted the idea that this is the form Gabriel takes because it's the only form that humanity, like a human brain, can like conceive without going insane. That's true. Um, you're not seeing Gabriel in Gabriel's true form. I think the pagan perspective on the world is fascinating. Yeah. And... The idea of the, the the idea that I've been so entrenched in generations of like a Puritan interpretation of the world, I think is sad because, I mean, it's boring, right? Like I just I feel like it's a boring world. You know, I go hiking, and frequently when we go hiking. There's a shama thrush, a very beautiful bird that shows up, and I tell I talk to Kane about this, and I'm like. Like, you know, in Hawaiian, in like in, in, in Hawaiian religion, there's the belief of the Amakua, which the Amakua is a, is a spirit guide, like a spirit animal. And they they manifest by being like regular companions. So if a certain type of like bird or fish or something is always around you, then that's your that's revealing itself to be your Amakua. And so I'm like, well, you know, how do I what, 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 what if that bird is my Amakua? Like, what if that's a thing? <laughs> right. Like, that's cool. Right. Like, that's cool to think that 
you know, I go hiking, but there's some spirit that's just like showing up to be like, yo, welcome to the trail. You know, like, yeah. you know, be respectful out here, you know, um, I, you know, I just, that, that, that worldview is cool. And the thing is, is it's, you know, I've, I've been raised so much in my life to think like, well, that's, that's, that's an evil demonic right. way of seeing the world. It's like, that's kind of how Paul saw the world. I mean, that's the world that these people inhabited, right? They took for granted that this is how the, how things worked. And their issue was, again, not work, don't worship it, right? Because it's not worthy of worship, but you know, it's still out there. C.S. Lewis, who said, you know, Christianity never really, re- never really denied the pagan gods. It just gave them their proper context. Hmm. Um, like I think that I think there's a lot of wisdom in what C.S. Lewis is saying there, and yeah, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons why he's so misunderstood, but or just misunderstood. I should say he is very misunderstood. Even if we say like, oh, it's not biblical, right? So these biblical beings, like, it's like, so like uh, you know, but like from the realm of science and things that we know about, like quantum mechanics and quantum realities like is the idea is that is there something that exists on a higher plane right right like who, who are we to say no it doesn't and is this not our way of acknowledging it right or in, encountering it i don't know should we right. encourage our listeners on this episode that this might be one that you might want to hit the blunt first <laughs> But don't drop the acid first because we can't guarantee what you'll see. (laughs) Toke it up. Uh, You'll probably want a friend to watch after you. Uh, (laughs) You'll need a shirt. You'll need your. You'll need your. What's what's the? We'll serve as your shaman uh, as you you (laughs) as you go on your journey, which is a horrible idea. (laughs) Don't do it. You know, it's interesting. I have a podcaster that I listened to was mentioning how, like, you know legalizing drugs and sort of like demystifying them people don't realize that like when when ancient people were getting high they had a shaman they went to to kind of like help them right mm-hmm. kind of like make sure it's like make sense of what they were seeing to like give it meaning mm-hmm. we don't have that anymore you know like now we're just like oh go get high and whatever happens happens and it's like i don't i think i think we need I think we need a, a a a kind of guide to take us through something like that. If someone were to indulge themselves, and you know, yeah, like the guys, the guys I see walking around down here in King Street, like making faces and screaming into the ether, they could probably benefit from someone to like shepherd them through their process, right? Like those guys in uh, in in Seoul, right? Like the yeah. Who are happy with the lost souls and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm saying we are that shaman for you. If you're high right now, we'll take you on the journey. I can't endorse this. I just want to go ahead and say that as a as a duly ordained priest in God's church, I cannot endorse that statement. <laughs> oh, thank you. May the grace of God be your guide. <laughs> thank you so much for listening, and please. Join us again next week. Father Chuck, thank you for coming out. Have a good week. Good journey. Have a good journey. Have a good journey. <laughs> Have a good journey. What's wrong with that, man? It's nothing wrong with that. Breaking protocol. All right. Good journey. But all but all was on a journey. <laughs> <laughs>